Hey, it's Stephen Henderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the clean energy transition and people who live in low-income areas who are kind of being left behind. We're first going to talk with DTE Energy, which recently reached a settlement with a number of advocacy organizations that will see the energy company pay a little more attention to low-income areas and making sure that they benefit from the affordability that should be accompanying the transition to clean energy. And then we're going to talk with Nick Schreck of the University of Detroit uh, Mercy Law School. He is an environmental expert who joins us from time to time to talk about this transition and about the inequality that sometimes is associated with it. But first, we want to discuss a recent settlement between DTE Energy and environmental groups that will double DTE's spending on energy efficiency in low-income areas. That settlement, with which the Michigan Public Utilities Service Commission approved at its November 9th meeting, is projected to help save customers $600 million over 10 years. But what are the specifics of this settlement and what will it mean for customers, especially in places like Detroit, where we have so many low-income families that struggle with energy bills? To discuss this, we have Jason Koopser here. He is the manager of energy efficiency at DTE Energy. Jason, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Happy to be here. It's great to have you with us. So I want to talk about this settlement first. Uh, it is a settlement that says DTE will double spending on energy efficiency in low-income areas. It will change operations for DTE and specifically for its operations in low-income areas of Michigan. Uh, what is DTE required to do and how will that look to people in these low-income uh, parts of our state? So as we think about the energy efficiency plans that DTE has been <clears throat> excuse me, been providing since 2009, it's been a, a growing uh, a program, not only for our programs and our budgets within that, but also for our low-income programs as well. Um, and we continue to invest more and more into those low-income programs, uh, looking for an investment of $63 million in 2024 and then $73 million in 2025 as uh, outlined in our plan. So we're looking to be able to provide offerings uh, to our low-income customers across our service territory, uh, as well, of course, in the city of Detroit and within Wayne County. Hmm. So... uh the the idea of making sure that this kind of shift to uh, to clean energy is inclusive. Talk about what that looks like inside DTE, which of course is the provider here in the city of Detroit and uh, has uh, has a strained relationship at times with with poor families who can't keep up on their bills. Uh, we do end up with. Lots of shutoffs and things like that, um, but but put that in the context of the shift to cleaner energy. Um, how how does DTE approach these questions uh, in in areas where, for instance, um, we haven't even made the kinds of technological advances that were possible years ago? For instance, people living in in areas and homes that don't have proper insulation, even. Uh, this this new transition uh, seems like it would require a lot of old transition as well. <laughs> so, 
Um, you have a lot of questions there in that <laughs> yeah. uh, statement. Uh, as we talk about clean energy, DTE, um, we, we put together an integrated resource plan, which we, we file with the staff and have a, a, a conversation related to what the future of that looks like. And a component of that is energy efficiency, uh, which is where I can speak more to. Um, and as we think about that transition to cleaner energy, and if you can be more energy efficient, it's less energy is necessary uh, to develop um, in whatever method that may be into the future. So as we think about what does that mean for our, our customers, our low-income customers, our just customers in general that uh, feel like they need to be able to take control of their energy bill and how can they do that? And we talk about new technology, but it's, there's actually very... Uh, foundational things in which people can do that have always been there. Uh, again, that we've been running these programs for quite a while. If I was to make encouragement to air seal your home, mm -hmm. put insulation in the attic, these aren't new things, right. but those are the things that use energy. Yeah. And uh, how do we put together programs to make it so all of our customers can take advantage of that and, uh, and make those homes more energy efficient take control of your energy bill and save energy. Yeah. So so I want to talk about the financial consequences of this settlement. The Utilities Commission said this would save customers $600 billion over 10 years. What's that going to look like in the near future for people's bills in, in low-income neighborhoods in Michigan? Will they actually end up spending less on their energy bills? For the customers who take advantage of our programs, they will spend less, yes. But our customers for our different programs, it's part of our, our rate. Um, and we, we structure our rate for the customers who uh, take advantage of them and where our programs are targeted at. For our low-income programs, we have all of our customers pay for that, both our residential and commercial and industrial, to share uh, that opportunity to try and help our most needing customers. Mm. So. So, uh, can we talk about the carbon consequences as well? How much cleaner is our grid going to be because of this kind of energy and efficiency program? Uh, I appreciate the, the question related to carbon. I haven't done the study on what does this translate to um, in terms of carbon reduction. It, of course, it all depends on how you create the energy. And then, of course, what that carbon reduction is for uh, the energy efficiency measures that we put in place. Um, but I think that as we, we move to more energy efficient homes, um, besides the carbon input, that also those homes become more healthy um, with more energy efficiency, with healthy products that are being used to insulate and to, to make more energy efficient furnaces that uh, our programs can help support at least that part of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, I'm talking with Jason Koopser, who is the manager of energy efficiency at uh, DTE Energy. We're talking about a recent settlement that will see the energy company uh, spending a lot of time and effort to make sure that energy efficiency programs happen in low-income neighborhoods, uh, places where it is often tougher to make sure that people have the proper insulation in their houses and all the kinds of things that make uh, lower energy bills possible. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. A little later, we're going to talk with Nick Schreck, an associate dean of experiential education and associate professor at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. 
He's an environmental expert who joins us from time to time to talk about uh, these kind of things. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation. Give us a call. Let us know uh, what you make of this DTE settlement. Do you have questions for DTE about how it will affect the company's uh, practices here in the city of Detroit and in other low-income parts of the state? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Jason, DTE had created a program to increase energy efficiency programs in low-income neighborhoods with higher energy bills. But this year, the company had wanted to scrap the program, according to Elena Saxonhaus, who's the managing attorney for the Sierra Club. Uh, Talk about why DTE wanted to walk away from that program. Actually, as I think about our offerings for our low-income customers... Um, and specifically the neighborhood approach that we had. It's, it was another channel in medium in which we could reach out and try and bridge the relationship between DT and our customers. And, and sometimes there's apprehension between our low-income customers and DT uh, for, for various different reasons uh, that they, they, they're not sure if they trust us coming into their home and be able to offer those, those offerings. Um, as part of our pl- previous plan, uh, we, we created the neighborhood approach, and uh, and we were continuing. We were expecting to continue that into 2024. We weren't looking to scrap it. We felt that we had built momentum there, and we had made inroads to the neighborhood, walking, working with uh, the neighborhood groups, and having some um, events to to speak with the the residents of the neighborhood, as well as being able to actually do some installations and build some on-the-street credibility to show that we are, in fact, doing what we said we were there. So we want to continue that momentum. And so DT was, was, was very happy to continue this program and see how it works and potentially expand it as uh, we talked with uh, our different advocacy groups as part of that settlement. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Let's go to Kim in Detroit. Kim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Mm -hmm. I I just want to say that the only reason DTE is doing anything with this settlement that's any good, the only reason they've done anything positive in the last few years is because of massive grassroots pushbacks on their energy plans this year and a few years ago. Groups like Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition and Solidarity out of uh, Highland Park have been pushing DTE for years to do the right thing. And the last thing I want to say that's pertinent to this program in particular and, and WDET, uh, DT, DTE could do a whole lot more if they spent less on buying media, like they support WDET. That's great. But they buy, uh, they buy up stuff in the Chronicle. They buy up stories in the free press telling us what a wonderful job they're doing. So why don't you all use that money to help customers and lower rates and do all this efficiency stuff that you want to do instead of telling us what a good job you're doing, do a good job. <laughs> Spend that money on doing a good job. Uh, Kim, fair points, and I really appreciate the call and uh, and the questions. I, I probably should have noted we usually do when we talk about and with DTE on the program that DTE has supported WDET uh, from time to time. Uh, that's very separate, of course, from the conversations that we have on shows like this uh, with representatives of uh, of the company. But but Jason, I'll give you a chance to to answer that question. I mean, in particular, his first point about 
why DTE is doing what it's doing and, and whether it has to be pushed uh, by members of the community to, to do those things. As part of our regulatory environment, uh, basically, which, which means that we have a, an oversight from the Michigan Public Service Commission as it relates to how we offer programs and the rates that we offer and, and what our plans are, um, that's, that's an ongoing conversation that we have every couple of years specifically for energy efficiency plans. And we have our advocacy groups, the grassroots groups that he is referring to, as well as uh, the Attorney General's Office, the Michigan Public Service Commission staff. And, and it's a, I like to think about it as a conversation. It's a legal conversation. And there are those advocacy groups telling us about their People's, the representing their people to, to talk about what pieces uh, that they would like to see as part of it. We also do our other type of research, uh, trying to benchmark other programs across the country. Uh, we ask our customers in uh, surveys that, that we do, um, and we look for the opportunity of potential to hit our legislative goals. And all of those things become components of how we build our energy efficiency program. And uh, absolutely, we, we appreciate the conversation and we have it as an ongoing conversation with those different advocacy groups. Um, and they have helped us uh, see how we can enhance our program to make it as best beneficial as possible for all of our customers, especially our low-income customers. Yeah. Uh, what about his point about how you prioritize spending at DTE? Uh, I mean, I think if you added up all the money you spend on media together, it might not uh, make much of a dent in the efforts to shift to clean energy or to help low-income uh, uh, customers uh, keep their power on. Uh, I think there's often a misconception about uh, how much you spend that way. But uh, the idea of prioritizing and making sure that you're putting that work first, I think is, a, is an interesting question. I wonder if you can address that, that concern. Well, as it relates to all of DT's spending, I, I can't address that particular concern, but I can talk about how we uh, allocate our money within our energy efficiency programs. Um, so are, we have pretty aggressive goals that have been encouraged by our advocates, uh, environmentalist advocates specifically, uh, to, to get more and more energy efficiency savings uh, as technologies change and make it harder to get those energy efficiency savings. We have to incentivize our customers by giving them um, uh, incentives to, to adopt those technologies. And a lot of our focus is to, to reach those legislative goals and uh, to give the money back to the customers who are making that investment or to help our, our low-income customers by fully covering the charges of the investments within their home. Um, and that's our focus within the energy efficiency space. Um, and, and, of course, building awareness of why it's important to do that. Mm. Uh, back to the settlement, how soon will people uh, see differences? How soon will people be able to participate in the things that you plan to do? So the settlement, it's, it, it's a planned period that starts on January 1st, 2024, um, and it covers a two-year period. So as we're continuing to grow our programs, I mean, these programs, as I mentioned, have existed since 2009. So these are just expansions of, of investment into the programs to offer many of the things that we have offered for a while and uh, expanding potentially that neighborhood that we're, we're supporting and uh, investing more money with our, our partners to, to move our customers to become more energy efficient. 
Okay, uh, Jason Koopser, Manager of Energy Efficiency at DTE Energy. Uh, really appreciate you coming on to talk about this settlement and DTE's uh, wider efforts to help us transition uh, to clean energy. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. should we make of a recent slate of legislation that requires Michigan to get 100% of its electricity from clean sources by 2040? I know that sounds like it's a long way away, but it's really only 17 years, and we're already behind in that transition. So what else does the state need to do to make that transition happen and to ensure that energy bills are affordable? To talk about all that, we've got Nick Shrek here with us. He's the Associate Dean of Experiential Education and an Associate Professor at University of Detroit Mercy Law School. He is an environmental law expert who joins us from time to time on the program to talk about these issues. Nick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, Stephen. Thanks. Great to be with you. So I want to start with the recent DTE settlement and what it means for low-income neighborhoods in Michigan. You know, there is always a certain level of skepticism, I think, that people have about DTE and not just its intentions, but its performance. This on its face seems like a step in the right direction, but of course that that Skepticism always kind of creeps in just a little. So right. I'm, I'm eager to hear what, what your reaction is to uh, the settlement. Well, it, it's a good thing. I mean, more money available, you know, doubling the program from a million to $2 million um, for low-income families to have access to weatherization, insulation, um, as well as upgrades of, of appliances, uh, you know, that can have a huge benefit for people on their household bills but then also improves efficiency, which means we don't have to generate as much electricity. So there's an environmental benefits there as well. Um, you know, and the skepticism, you note, I mean, that's very real. And it's something that, you know, DTE has struggled at times to get people to participate in these programs. And so, um, you know, really, you need to have partnerships with oh, groups like the Ecology Center and ClearCore and other org organizations that, you know, help do outreach and link up people to make sure that they're eligible for these programs and that they can take advantage of them. So that's, I mean, having the funds available, that's, you know, great work out of Sierra Club, Natural Resource Defense Council, Ecology Center, and other groups to, you know, really force DTE to invest this money uh, through through litigation in the Public Service Commission. Uh, but now we just need to get people to, you know, participate in the program and, you know, know the funds are available and then to sign up and, and get the work done in their homes. So so we did have a caller in the last segment who, who said that this – wouldn't happen without uh, the activism that it has grown up around energy and then the energy company here in in the city of Detroit and throughout the state that that uh, without that push DTE would not be would not be doing those things do you think that's a fair assessment of the way that the, the power company thinks of these things I mean in, in some ways they do, have something to gain from investing in in this transition, not just in in places where people can afford it, but in, in all places. But of course, uh, they also have 
very in, uh, a very steep profit motive as well, and this mm-hmm. costs money. So, so is that a fair criticism of where we are with the relationship between DTE and and customers? Well, first, full disclosure, you know, I'm an attorney and through my law clinic, I do regularly represent a lot of these organizations, you know, in front of the Public Service Commission uh, (laughs) and in litigation, uh, often with the utility. So, you know, I have to put that out there as a caveat that from my perspective, yes, it's very important that we have this adversarial process where community voices can be brought in uh, to really push our publicly regulated utilities like Detroit Edison here um, in Detroit to... um, to do better, right? And to do better for especially those that don't have the financial resources to, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, even stay current on your bills, let alone invest big sums of money in energy efficiency programs. So, so yes, I think, um, and the other thing to point out is that we wouldn't be having these conversations if it were not for a state law change back in 2008 that again requires the utility to um, incorporate these types of programs. And so, you know, prior to 2008, we didn't really have um, an opportunity for community groups to be part of this process. So since then, you know, there's been this kind of building level of, of cases in the Public Service Commission that have led up to increasing ev- investments in these energy efficiency programs. Hmm. Now, the utility may have gotten some of the way right on their own. I think because of a transition to clean and renewable energy that we'll talk about, I'm sure in a minute, you know, they're, they're going to have to make some of these investments on their own, but certainly the focus and intensity on um, neighborhoods that really need it, right? Like our low income communities, I don't know that that would have been at the forefront were it not for these adversarial uh, proceedings in the Public Service Commission and community um, you know, pushback mm-hmm. when the Public Service Commission doesn't go far enough or the utility doesn't go far enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the, the, the bigger picture here, which is this transition in our state to clean energy and this goal of having 100 uh, percent clean yeah. energy sources by 2040, as I said 2040 sounds like a long way away, but if you look at uh, if you look at a calendar, uh, it's only it's only 17 years and soon to be 16 years. So, uh, how are we doing with that transition? Uh, as I said in the intro to this segment, I, I know we're behind, uh, but but what are the things that you think could fall into place? that could get us back on pace and and therefore back on track to, to maybe make that goal? Well, there's some really big changes coming out of Lansing. So there's a series of bills that are now ready for Governor Whitmer's signature, um, and the indications are that she plans to sign them that would you know kind of hasten or quicken our process towards 100% renewable energy here in the state. Um, and so, first of all, by 2030, there would be a 50% renewable energy requirement in the state. So that's, you know, what, seven years, not even uh, six years away. Um, and then 60% by 2035 to kind of get us aggressively on that renewable energy uh, uh, timeline to get us to 100%. And then, yes, by 2040, there'd be that requirement for 100% clean energy. Now, there's a question about the definitions, and there are a lot of definitions in these bills. And so that would include, um, you know, we'd still have some nuclear power, certainly, that would be included in that. Uh, there's some disputes over how much natural gas the state would continue to have um, if those facilities could do carbon capture. You know, those technologies, if they come online, we might still have, you know, a significant percentage of natural gas generation in the state. But all that is to say, huge step forward, right? We're currently around 15% renewable energy. So getting up to, you know, 100% mm-hmm. that standard by 2040 is a really big lift and will take significant investments, um, 
on the part of our utility companies and also us as ratepayers to, to get there. Yeah. And as we were talking about with DTE, there is always this question about how inclusive that process is mm-hmm. and and making sure that people are not are not left behind. Uh, can you talk about the challenge that we have in that regard, even aside from this DTE settlement? Uh, yeah. the, the questions about what goes on in in low income areas in terms of energy efficiency and what has not gone on for such a long time, it seems like that's an even more formidable challenge for us. Yeah, great point. I mean, getting to 100% clean energy standard that's that's great, but you know, how do we ensure that folks that have been overburdened with pollution from you know generating electricity for the past 100 years, which primarily has been from fossil fuels, right? I mean, wasn't all that long ago that we had a oil-fired power plant on the Detroit River, you know, now where the Riverwalk goes along, you know, um, we 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 had coal-fired power plants up and down the Detroit River for many years. And so people have been burdened with that pollution for a long time. And and how do we ensure that in the future that clean energy development doesn't perpetuate or continue to expose certain people to um, the burden of that electric generation? So I think what you'll see is a rollout of more large-scale solar and wind farms in the state, which actually gets to another another battle that deals with how we site those and, and how who has control over where we site these large-scale renewable energy projects. But the idea is that as we transition away from fossil fuel sources, you'll have an improvement in public health and you'll have more of a shared burden of electric generation across the state rather than concentrated in lower income communities. And then the final thing I'll say is that, again, we really need to make sure that people are aware of these energy efficiency programs and the rebates that are available. Um, also, you know, landlords, people that own multi-unit housing developments, you know, really need to get on board with, with retrofitting, weatherization, insulation. Because again, the, the cheapest electricity is that which we don't have to generate. And if we can avoid um, the cost of generating electricity, whether it's even from renewables, because there are some costs to doing that, mm-hmm. that's a better place to be. So making our, our systems more efficient, including our homes and businesses, that's uh, really money well spent. And so um, fortunately, again, through the Public Service Commission, um, and then also the Attorney General, the Michigan Attorney General, you, you know, intervenes in these cases on behalf of the people as well. So you have environmental groups, you've got community organizations working with environmental groups, you have the Attorney General's office. So hopefully between all those different stakeholders, we're at least elevating the voices of the most impacted communities and making sure that we don't, again, kind of perpetuate those past harms where the the lowest income folks, um, people with the least amount of resources, we're bearing the you know a burden of, of, of pollution from generating electricity. Yeah. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Call and let us know what you make of the efforts to transition to 100% clean energy here in Michigan by 2040. Uh, what do you make of the recent settlement uh, that DTE reached with a number of advocacy groups that will see it spend more time and effort making sure that low-income areas of our city and state are able to participate in the clean energy transition uh, in the same way that other 
other parts of the state are. Uh, give us a sense of what you think we need to do. What kind of leadership do we need to see in places like Lansing that would get us to that goal of 100% clean energy uh, by 2040? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and be part of the conversation that way. Let's start with uh, Amanda in Detroit. Amanda, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you? I am doing. I am doing okay, but I am yelling at my radio as I usually do when I listen to your show. Um, <laughs> I hope not so in a I, bad way. <laughs> no, no, not never in a bad way. Always in a oh my god kind of way. So I work with um, a neighborhood organization, Bailey Park Neighborhood Development Corporation, mm-hmm. in McDougal Hunt, and we've got a home repair program, and we're working with uh, Michigan Saves and EcoWorks and DTE program. And it's incredibly frustrating because we'll get people who come out and want to do things like the heat pumps or solar panels mm-hmm. or the Energy Efficiency um, Auditor Academy and look at the homes and say, hey, this would be a great idea, but all of these houses are leaking like sieves. And the DTE energy efficiency, the the generic one comes out and they give you some faucet aerators and some light bulbs. It's not insulation. It's not talking about repairing people's roofs mm. or replacing older windows because none of that is the sexy stuff. Yeah. So we can get to, again, out in the suburbs where people can make those investments or take out loans to do those improvements on their homes, which are often generally newer in the first place it's still being lost on the most vulnerable. So you've got people who are spending six, $700 exorbitant amounts on their heating and cooling, and people are saying, oh, well, make sure that you weatherize your windows. Right. Plastic film only goes so far. <laughs> when right, you, they need new windows, right? Yeah. Right, and those dollars are just not flowing fast enough because I don't think that we have a great appreciation of what the actual need is. And there's a lack of investment from the energy, you know, the greener technology companies are like, oh, yeah, we would love to do that, but you can't put solar on a broken roof. Right, right. It's incredibly frustrating. Uh, Amanda, Uh, I I really appreciate the call, and that is a really wonderful point to make. Um, It's kind of at the heart, I think, of what we're talking about here, which is that, uh, you know, as in many endeavors, uh, poverty and the things that happen to people because of poverty, they get in the way of uh, just about everything. So, yeah, we want to shift to clean energy, but when people don't have a roof that doesn't leak or people have windows that are 30 or 40 years old, uh, some of the things that we're talking about doing don't address the problem, which is that they're they're living in, um, you know, they're living in places that are affected by, uh, by the poverty that they experience. Uh, Nick Shrek, what is the answer to this? I mean, uh, I always feel like when we're having these conversations, I want to, I just want to say, well, you know, really, poverty is the is the problem, and that's what we right, should be focused right. on. But of course, we can't not do these things as well. It's about bridging that gap, I guess, between uh, the needs that people have and the things that we that we want to do or the goals we want to reach 
Yeah, and and this is it really is a challenge and you know great point from the caller because that's right. There's often things that are that are kind of structural that get in the way of the money flowing in, into the places where it's most needed, um, or actual physical you know issues with properties that need to be addressed before they're eligible for these programs. That's incredibly frustrating. So yeah, I mean poverty, it, it's a huge issue and it's something that you know certainly won't be solved by this settlement or or by you know even the utility on their own. But one thing that we can do is, again, make sure that people are aware of what programs are eligible for. And there are certain programs that aren't specifically related to energy efficiency, but that could very much help um, with like window replacement, for instance. Um, so a lot of our older homes in Detroit may have uh, lead paint you know, and lead on the windows, which is another environmental risk we're, we're very concerned with. And so there's there's funding to help do replacements of, of windows and doors that, that have lead paint. Um, so again, you know, the caller mentioned EcoWorks, great organization that helps link people up with these resources. ClearCore in Detroit, another organization that helps link people up with these resources. Because yeah, it doesn't make sense to put solar panels on a roof that's that's going to cave in, right? You need to do these things in sequence. Um, you need to make sure that the, the envelope of a building is as tight and, and insulated as possible before you, you put in the higher efficiency appliances. So um, yeah, there, there's a lot of challenges again related to poverty. Uh, one other thing I will mention is that over the summer, there was another big settlement. Uh, DTE puts together these long-term plans are called integrated resource plans for how they're going to invest money over several years. And a settlement over the summer included, again, another big boost in um, low-income energy efficiency programs, and also it included money to go towards arrearages, so people that you know aren't current on mm -hmm. their bills, because that's another thing we got to clear that hurdle, right? Like people, you're not going to be eligible for these programs if you have debt, so we we need to make sure that that's taken care of again before people can get some of these investments in efficiency. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Nick Schreck of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Uh, we'll also continue to hear from you, our listeners. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Before we go back to callers, I want to talk about something that happened last week. The state legislature passed a two-bill package that would le let state regulators override local decisions about where to allow large-scale wind and solar arrays. Uh, this is a fight that, that goes on uh, pretty frequently, which is who's in control and, uh, right. and, and how do we make sure that we're pushing toward uh, this goal together, but, but of course not violating people's Right. I wonder what you make of uh, of this particular legislation. Well, well there's been a, a big challenge in permitting large scale solar, so solar farms, you know, a lot of solar panels um, in a field and, and wind farms in the state. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback from local communities, often like township boards, where national kind of political arguments permeate the local discourse about land use decisions and you get a lot of just misinformation flooding uh, communities about you know risks and harm from renewable energy sources which are all complete junk right there, there's really no no you know you're not going to get poisoned from a solar panel um, it's just not true but a lot of this stuff is out there in particular on social media so what these bills would do is that for large scale so 50 megawatts or more so a lot of solar panels um, or wind facilities that generate 100 megawatts or more the Public Service Commission would actually handle the permitting process for those large facilities. 
Now there's still some provisions for some, some local involvement in that process, but you would at least have the Public Service Commission as kind of a final um, decision maker on whether it's a good decision to put this particular facility in a particular place. And this is important because farmers actually, many farmers want to enter into lease agreements with utility companies to put solar panels or to put wind turbines on their property and they've been blocked from doing so by their local government. And the other reason why this is important is we need to be really strategic about where we locate these facilities so that we can tie into existing power transmission infrastructure, get on the grid, in other words, in the cheapest and most efficient way. And so you don't necessarily want these things done in a sort of hodgepodge piecemeal approach in areas where they're not necessarily needed. We really want smart targeted investment. So um, this has been really controversial because Michigan, we're a home rule state, meaning that our local communities typically make land use decisions. But in terms of energy infrastructure, that's not always true. In mm -hmm. fact, the Public Service Commission already decides on where electric transmission lines go and where you know, oil and gas pipelines are run through the state. So this is kind of bringing in renewable energy into their portfolio, if you will, of things that where they make decisions, um, you know, on behalf of kind of energy planning for the whole state. Yeah. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Diana in Belleville. Diana, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I've been really enjoying the conversation and I was just hoping that we could get a message to the folks in Lansing. Uh, so back in 2015, the electric heat rate codes from our friends at DTE and Consumers Energy were eliminated. And these rate codes are really critical to mm. making sure that when we have heat pumps, the cost of electricity is affordable. How are we going to protect consumers from high electric heat bills going forward as we transition to heat pumps? That's a great question, uh, uh, Diana. I'm glad you called. Uh, Nick, what's what's the answer? <laughs> yeah, and, and so this is we've got um, a challenge here as we're transitioning, and and you know heat pumps really efficient, right? So you can heat and cool using you know one appliance that kind of looks like an air conditioner, but you can heat and cool um, on the majority of days in Michigan without any issue. And, you know, I mean, you could potentially have an issue if it's very, very cold, like polar vortex, you might need, you know, backup furnace. But in essence, a heat pump can handle all of your heating and cooling needs, but they run on electricity. So what happens if you see electricity rates, electricity rates skyrocket? Um, what can that mean for consumers? And so what the caller is getting at there is, you know, kind of how we price electricity and you know whether there's there's some kind of price caps or protections. We do have um, what are called rate cases. So when DT and consumers seek to raise their rates, they do have to again go before the Public Service Commission. There's an opportunity for environmental and community groups to intervene in that process, as well as the Attorney General, to make sure that rates are set um, at, at an at appropriate level. Which again, we don't always agree, right? Like I would love my rates to be lower, um, but we we do need to, you know, again, kind of make some of these investments. Um, on a statewide basis. And so that's where that, those debates will be had at the Public Service Commission. So, um, you know, I don't have a perfectly targeted answer to the caller. I would just say that those rate decisions are things that, again, are subject to approval by the Public Service Commission. Mm -hmm. And that hopefully advocates like people that want heat pumps, you know, people that are, that are really trying to invest, make that investment, we can make sure that we get some, some kind of rate control and protection in there for people to make sure that they're not uh, hit with huge outstanding um, electric bills after, you know, say a really cold winter or a really hot summer. Yeah, yeah. Diana, really appreciate the call and uh, the great question. Let's go to Charlie, who is up by Flint. Charlie, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, you know, not just for their 
our state, but our planet, we're facing an existential threat. And if we don't approach it something akin to the Marshall Plan and try to deal with some of these, you know, ways of getting away from fossil fuels, we, we may not make it. You know, if we don't really take it seriously, it may be too late. So, uh, Charlie, that that analogy, I think, uh, to to the idea of a Marshall Plan, you know, something that kind of rallies everybody around one cause, uh, is is really interesting, and it's something that I I think a lot of people have thought about in the context of, you know, this transition to clean energy, and of course, uh, other environmental concerns. I, I think. I think if you asked President Biden, uh, he might say that uh, he's well on his way to doing something like that with the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, I think there could be a lot of debate about whether that's an accurate reflection of what's being done or not. But certainly there is this, I think, new effort uh, to, to, to push us together uh, faster toward uh, this goal. But Nick, I wonder what you make of of this idea of a Marshall Plan and whether what the president is doing and trying to lead the country uh, to do even comes close to to a mark like that. Well, I agree with the caller on the need and and the risk that we face from this rapidly warming planet. Um, You know, we're already seeing that devastation in in many different ways, um, not just here in the United States, but, but around the world. And so, you know, I agree that we need that kind of a focused approach from our federal government and then also from our, our state and local governments as well. Um, as far as the Biden administration, I mean, primarily what they've been able to do in a very big and aggressive way is through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, both laws which do provide massive increases in spending in things like renewable energy and energy efficiency, very much needed. Um, but the, the catch here is that these are, you know, kind of carrot approaches where we're in trying to incentivize people, individuals to make decisions about the type of appliances they put in their homes, as well as uh, the, the type of cars that they drive, you know, trying to shift more to um, electric vehicles. And then, of course, our utilities trying to get them to ag- aggressively invest in renewable sources of energy. Um, but a lot of these things are, are targets based on um, you know, money and incentives like that, rather than a law that you know requires us nationally to meet 100% you know clean energy standard by by a date certain. So, I think it's a great step forward. But the thing is, we will only realize the energy efficiency and renewable energy goals of the Inflation Reduction Act, say, if those p- programs are implemented, if we get all that wind so and solar energy online and operating. Um, that that's really the big question because you don't have statutory mandates necessarily for all those programs, it's a lot of incentives. And so that's where I do think we need a, a bigger approach nationally and, and national legislation dealing with climate change, right? I mean, that's really what we need. Unfortunately, we all know the current situation in Congress, we're not likely to yeah. pass a budget, let alone, you know, right. let alone do these really big <laughs> things. So so fortunately, the Biden administration's you know, kind of doing what they can um, based on their, their spending power. And, and locally, how do you think we're doing with leadership getting us toward this 2040 goal, which is, that's ours. Uh, That's not being imposed by the federal government. Well, I mean, this has been a a big focus of Governor Whitmer uh, to to try and shift the state aggressively to a a clean energy future. And, um, you know, I think she deserves credit for uh, pushing her party and pushing folks in the legislature to, you know, move on these bills. 
Um, and it's a good thing they did, you know, before uh, the the Michigan, um, you know, House now is going to be kind of in <laughs> a divided government phase until there's some elections to replace um, a couple Democrats. Um, and, and so in, in other words, getting those bills passed when they did was important so that we can now start to, you know, try and implement them, assuming the governor signs them. So, yeah, I mean, I think at the, at the head of the state, you know, our governor is definitely on board and really pushing to transition our state to a clean energy future. You know, local government, that's a real mixed bag. You've got some communities that are, again, all in and, and really pushing, and then others that are, that are kind of resistant. And so I think we need to, again, have some of these state-level state planning decisions, like at the Public Service Commission, about where we're locating electric generating sources and where we're making our investments, because, you know, however many townships and cities and villages we have in Michigan, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's hundreds, uh, if you leave it to all those individual units of government to try and make these changes, we're not going to get where we need to be. So some of this stuff is going to have to be a, a statewide approach. Okay, uh, Nick Schreck, uh, environmental law expert from the University of Detroit, Mercy. Always great to have you here for these conversations on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. My pleasure. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.